welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from about 1839. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in Beijing for seven years. This podcast is a sort of love letter and a farewell letter to China, and let's get right into it. Uh, the If you'd like to support the podcast, by the way, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack if you'd like to get to the show notes, subscribe, uh, become a paid subscriber on the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. If you'd like to see the podcast develop in certain ways, please email me at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Okay, here we go. Uh, today we're talking more about Hong Rangan, uh, his return journey to, uh, to rejoin the Taiping movement, and what it was like once he got there. And we are mostly drawing upon Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China the West, and its epic story, and the epic story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen Platt. And today, okay, we're looking at the, the journey from Hong Kong to Nanjing, its overland, and Hongrengan's arrival in Nanjing, and what it was like when he got there, what it's been like in Nanjing since the Taiping takeover, and the condition of the Taiping movement as Hongrengan found it, and then I'll go a little bit off into kind of the like where we're going from here with the podcast for the Taiping Rebellion. So foreign uh, military forces have been constantly around China at this point, and which way they lean will significantly affect the balance of power in the conflict, and how the Taiping appeal or fail to appeal to foreign powers will determine how they turn out. So we'll be returning to the discussion of what's going on in the minds of representatives of foreign powers because that's going to be very important for showing how not only the uh, Taiping failed to be quite Chinese enough, they failed to be quite whatever the foreigners were enough for them to sign on and say, yeah, they're the same as us, we're supporting them. In future episodes, we will be returning to how foreign powers felt about what was going on, and we're going to see how they felt about their right to intervene in China. Since the summer of, in the summer of 1858, Hong Rengan is making his way north from Hong Kong, overland in disguise. So we're going to get a good look about, uh, get a good look at how China has been doing, and uh, when we were following the advance of the Taiping armies, mostly we got the dramatic run and gun across hundreds of miles that they they just kept moving. Occasionally, 
they stopped for like six months or a year or something, but they they did this blindingly fast move across China because they weren't conquering and holding territory. They would conquer and take things, but they just kept moving. They didn't let Qing forces you know, pin them down. They They just had to keep moving. And so that's good as far as their survival uh, tactically, but in the long term, you know, this they moved away from their central areas of support. You know, and so in the story today, we're going to look at the devastation with the uh, offensive, counteroffensive, conquest, reconquest by both sides, and what it's like under occupation. So Hongrengan first goes to Canton. You know, so because Hong Kong is an island or a series of islands, and so Canton direct is directly tied into the Chinese road system. It was under foreign occupation at the time, but it was a safe, it was a good spot for Hong Rengan to set out on his journey. So he sets out for the northeast. Uh, in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, uh, there's an intricate description of the road networks, how well they're They've been worked through the hills and the mountains. Uh, a very picturesque description of the area through which Hongrengan traveled. And you know, when a country has been inhabited for as long as China has, you know, nothing you look at is untouched by human activity. Like you, you can casually discover, you know, a Buddhist cave monastery from you know seven hundred years ago, like it's nothing. Well, it's not nothing. It's quite a something. There's just so much history, you're just tripping over it. And so in that area, travelers are mostly wandering salesmen, carrying goods for sale. And there's also Qing soldiers patrolling for bandits. And so how Hongrengan traveled was in the guise of a wandering salesman. And, you know, he just looked like just some guy, and so he successfully passed through a lot of checkpoints looking for rebel messengers. I think one thing Hong Rangan also had going for him was that he had been separated from the Taiping for years, so he wouldn't know anything about their uniform, their insignia, their passwords. So he doesn't even look like he has anything to hide because he doesn't know what their uniform is. He hasn't been dressing like them. He's just dressing like some guy. And so the the Qing armies, what they had going for them was size, and that was about it. Something I said in a previous episode was that, you know, when you think about Chinese conflicts, they they get the job done for China, you know, so one side is going to win, another side is going to lose. The military technique may or may not be very good, depending on how things are going with the country at the time, but the armies fight, uh, the victors win, the losers lose. So the the, the size was... You know, but otherwise, they were poorly paid, there were loads of opium addicts, they were poorly commanded, many commanders bought their positions. So Hong Rangan was able to make it up to Hubei, and then he made it to the Yangtze River and, was work, and worked his way east down the river to Nanjing. 
So he traveled through widespread devastation of five years of fighting. So conquest and reconquest, wash, rinse, repeat, they, they just keep, the, the, the fight just keeps happening over the same areas. And there's no one to work the farms, so farming's not happening. You know, when soldiers are in one place for a long time, they need wood for cooking fires and for you know, fires to warm themselves. So wood is stripped from anywhere it could be stripped or scavenged from, you know, taking it off, you know, window frames, doors, the, the whole bit. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's, you know, soldiers need to go to the bathroom somewhere, and of course they do, and just, just everything smells bad. War just smells bad. Uh, and so he spent some months in the household of a local official. Uh, the official wanted him as a secretary, which is a good full-time job for an educated person, but you know, Hong Ren Gan wanted to keep moving on to Nanjing. He spent a few months in their household anyway, serving as a doctor for the official's son. Um, but news was coming in that Nanjing was surrounded, that it would fall to Qing forces. So Hong Ren Gan hit the road again, and the official gave him a letter of introduction and gave him money to help him keep going. And he traveled through areas occupied by Qing forces of varying levels of competence. At one point, he was captured and held for a few days by Qing forces, who had no idea who they had, until he escaped. He had gold leaf and an outline of his family history sewn into his clothes. You know, and so if anyone had searched him properly, they would have found quite the you know, quite the discovery lately, like, okay, gold leaf, I was like, okay, you've uh, got a fair bit laid by for a rainy day, haven't you? And the, uh, the, the genealogy, it's like, yeah, you're, you're related to the big cheese on the rebel side, aren't you? <laughs> We're going to uh, have some enhanced interrogation methods used on you, find out what you really know. And uh, so as as Hong Rangan escaped, locals in the area were getting tired of the long-term presence of Qing troops, so there were people willing to help him get out. You know, what, you know, maybe he pretends that he's escaping conscription or something. Any excuse will do. He managed to make contact with the British fleet going down the Yangtze, he wanted a ride to Nanjing, but was denied this, but he did succeed in getting a letter out to his missionary friend James Legg, so that, you know, he could say, he's alive, he's trying to get to Nanjing. Further down the river, he finally makes contact with a Taiping patrol. He's arrested as a Qing spy, and under interrogation by the garrison commander, um, in, you know, where, where he's being held, he you know, pulls out the fa the family genealogy, uh, of you know, so, so that he can prove who he is, where he's from, and so finally he convinced the interrogator, the 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 commander questioning him, you know, that he was from the same village as Hong Xiuquan, that that whatever else he's worth taking in for you know closer inspection in Nanjing, and so. The, the garrison commander personally escorts him to Nanjing. 
And so he arrives in Nanjing, April 22, 1859. Now, to give you an idea of what Nanjing was like, I'm going to make a reference to American news of the 1990s. There was this cult in San Diego in 1997 that rented this huge house, ran their cult there, later committed suicide together so their spirits would join the spaceship following the comet Hale-Bopp. Yeah, it was weird. It was really weird. Everything inside was really weird. It's like if you run an army on things you could get at Ikea. Like, you know, yeah, okay, they've all got the same stuff, but it's this weird, same cheap, functional stuff that, like, it's, um, it's about as ugly as kitschy things. Anyway, so, but, like, that house was still a house, though it was run by a cult and looked like it. It was really weird. Anyway, the city of Nanjing, it's run by the Taiping, it's seriously degraded from what it had been. Lots of the population moved out of the countryside as it, as they were permitted. Um, they, they just left. They got up and left. Buddhist and Taoist temples were destroyed. Markets were closed to keep spies posing as traveling merchants to keep them out. Um, some palaces were occupied by high-ranking Taiping officials. Other palaces were abandoned. It was this huge armed camp. But I guess it was a city. Uh, you know, in more detail, uh, remember the, the, the Taiping Rebellion was not a very long time. So you, you can see Beijing today. It's It's been a cult-possessed city. I mean, like when the, uh, you know, when the communists took it over, uh, there were some crazy periods. But, you know, it's it's been rebuilt. It's a city overflowing with life. I've, I, I've I lived there for seven years. I it it's a it's a fascinating place um you know but today's regime has managed to stabilize it's not under siege it's as normal as any you know colossal asian megalopolis is going to be um so nanjing in 1859 it had been the the original capital of the ming dynasty Temples, offices, trading houses, palaces, you know, beautiful everything everywhere. It has a 23-mile-long wall, or 37 kilometers, around the city. It touched the Yangtze at the northwest corner. After the Taiping conquered it in 1853, the Manchus were massacred, bodies dumped into the Yangtze, men and women segregated, markets closed... After some years of se of occupation, the segregation of men and women was ended, marriage was allowed again, opium was available again, but that wasn't necessarily by design of the uh, Taiping uh, leadership. Large parts of the city are overgrown, like, like just, it, like, it, it's empty, it's not lived in. The, the heavenly king, Hong Xuquan, is living in imperial seclusion, He's served exclusively by women. He saw a few visitors. I, I wonder what the point of that is. Is it like women are somehow more pure, or is it that he was really popular with the ladies? I, I don't I don't exactly understand how it worked for Hong Xuquan. Uh he wrote inscriptions in imperial vermilion, like a kind of red orange, like so he was writing his messages in this very special imperial red-orange ink. 
typing armies had left the capital going on foraging expeditions like i, I wonder what they were trying to to do you can only get so far by extracting the supplies that you need you have to be able to generate them yourself Qing forces were working to cut Nanjing off from support, starve it out, take it by siege. In 1856, a subordinate of the Heavenly King, the East King, had taken over as the Heavenly King withdrew into greater seclusion. But later, the East King was executed, 6,000 of his followers and every member of his family were executed. And 6,000 is not a small portion of the Taiping forces in Nanjing. And so you do have purges happening in revolutions. Um, I, you know, but usually like in any sense that that's possibly good, it usually works out for the revolution if it helps them clarify the ideology you know, you'll you'll have ideological divergence in various revolutions. Like so, in the French Revolution, where pretty much the one thing that everybody agreed on was get rid of the king and replace the monarchy with with a republic or or something constitutional monarchy. Well, you had purges, you know, where where they they'd wipe each other out, but then. They weren't quite able to solidify their ideology, so the French Revolution didn't really last past the 1790s. Um, you, uh, then the Bolsheviks in Russia, they were kind of able to clarify their ideology, but then it, in the decades following Stalin, it would kind of it fizzled out because they didn't have the the turnover of leadership. You just had leaders settling into place and. They would just kind of stay there forever, and there was no new ideas. Well, with the Taiping Rebellion, you're not going to have a stabilization of the regime. It's not going to go beyond Hong Xiuquan. With Hong Rengan's arrival, you know, Hong Xiuquan, uh, the, the big cheese, so he finds a new advisor he can solidly rely on, you know, because Hong Rengan is family, he's his cousin, He's one of the earliest converts, and he's highly educated, similar to Hong Xiuquan. Um, and, you know, Hong Xiuquan had promised never to appoint another king. You know, he, he had these subordinate kings, uh, that, but he broke that promise to make Hong Rengan the shield king. He, uh, Hong Rengan joined the top ranks of the Taiping military officers. He's in charge of the civil government in Nanjing. And, you know, to Hong Xiuquan, this may have been something like a sign from God. But other top-ranking commanders resented Hong Rengan's rapid promotion. You know, they'd been with the Taiping through the long, hard slog from the beginning. They risked their lives. Uh, they, it was extremely difficult campaigning over very rugged territory, you know, I know when you're writing, you're not supposed to use, you know, very, very much. But you see, the thing is, uh, China has some of the most rugged terrain in the world. And part of the reason for the linguistic diversity in South China, even just in the Chinese dialects, they like to call them, but it's really more of a family of languages, 
the it's just it's really really rugged rivers mountains dense forested areas you know people live in separate valleys it's not just like you know polite ascent and descent into you know over a nice sloping hill it's really you know up and down go the slopes it's it's really rugged the you know everything developed along rivers because you could travel down the river it was really hard to travel you know through like like when the uh, when the taiping were making their lightning move they would follow waterways where they could you know sometimes they'd drop all the boats they had and they'd jump over to take a bunch more boats at the next waterway that they can move to but it's really rugged territory so these these commanders had gone through all this they'd been there for the difficult bits while while hongren gan had been biding his time in hong kong and you know consider jealousy versus envy jealousy you know you feel that something should be yours envy you just you wish you had it you know like i envy the rich like okay well it's not like they took my money or they took money they took profits from something that i thought of no this is more like you know if you see a former you know boyfriend or girlfriend and like you know like okay like you know jealousy or like like you feel like somebody's cheating on you okay jealousy like you feel that thing should be yours so the, the, this is the kind of thing that they're feeling toward hongren gan like like you know they should be the the top leaders and not bring some guy in so hong xuquan who wanted hongren gan he had a huge ceremony publicly bestowing the seal of office hongren gan who could tell that he wasn't very well liked tried to turn it down but hong xuquan just pushed ahead with it you know figuring that everything would break like you know a wave on the shore he said um you know, thinking disapproval would dissipate well hongren gan's rhetorical powers like i guess he got a lot of practice preaching when he was going around with james leg um really helped him on this occasion uh, he was able to convince the crowd that he knew what he was doing so you know we're going to kind of put a pause on the story of hongren gan here so he he's in place as something like second in command so let, let's look at the historical context here so 1861-1865 was the american civil war english and french intervention was a major open question during that war one of the key foreign policy things that abraham lincoln was working on was keeping the europeans out of the war just keep this between the americans but the european powers were facing considerable pressure politically from various things so intervention was going to happen somewhere to get the pressure off we're at 1859 in china the american civil war is 2 years away interventions have happened in china and you know the precedent has been set that if the europeans want to send in some gun- gunboats and knock over some coastal fortifications blow some ships out of the water they can do it they have done it you know foreign trade with china is a huge source of revenue for european powers 
China's considerably easier for foreign powers to squeeze without feeling bad about it, you know, whereas like the Americans could appeal to European press, like the, the British press, well, Americans can write English sometimes. Um, American elites could do French. Um, German and Italian immigrants could do German and Italian. Like there's, there's actually kind of a, there's kind of a dramatic scene during the American Civil War when Giuseppe Garibaldi, one of the major Italian revolutionaries, came over to America to you know look at the Union Army, you know deciding whether he would join or whether he would try to command it. I mean that that was maybe more in Garibaldi's mind than anything else. But you know the, like America could speak directly to the to, to the people of Europe, whereas. China was kind of this faraway curiosity. It was this, you know, to the European mind, barbarian land, all that kind of thing. So, if you, you know, if you send military force to China, it doesn't feel so much like you're, you know, like there. It's a lot harder to imagine the feelings of people in cultures much further distant from yourself. So that's kind of angling things toward why China, why the Europeans would intervene in China rather than the American Civil War. So we'll go into more detail on that when we get up there. So, you know, where the, where the Taiping movement is, they're finding that running a state is a critical threshold for a revolutionary movement to be able to pass. You know, when you're the official government, capital O, capital G, official government, everybody's looking at you. It's your responsibility, your problem, your neck, your millstone. I can just imagine, you know, some Robin Hood type figure, you know, he's some like type A personality, um, you know, and then, you know, so then, you know, the, the people in charge of hanging millstones around necks come and say, who's in charge here? Well, I am, of course. And then, you know, just watching him squirm as he realizes, yeah, no, this is your millstone with your name on it, and it's going on your neck. Um, you know, when you're Robin Hood and, and company, you know, hiding out in the woods, uh, making occasional raids, you do what you can, and everybody understands if you're not acting like you're in charge yet. But the Taiping were kind of trying to be in charge. They were putting their effort into setting up an administration, things like that. You know, the, the Taiping kind of plateaued with their conquest of the city of Nanjing. They tried to set up a capital city. A lot of their strategic efforts kind of were dissipated. Um, you know, for, for our purposes, you know, as, as we handle the, uh, Taiping rebellion from here on out, we're going to kind of be looking at the roots of things that start in the Taiping rebellion that are going to lead to the more successful revolutions that are going to come. Hong Rengan, with his exposure to foreign things, will propose extensive modernization, connection to industrial world economy, but he's not going to get past the official Taiping ideology. The Taiping Rebellion will clarify the cause of liberation of the Han from Manchu rule, you know, the, the, the majority of the people in, of China, 
you know, for, you know, uh, from, it's like, like this, this cause is going to be clarified for future revolutionaries. Sometimes a failed first revolution adds to the mythology of a later successful revolution. It gives everybody something to believe in. You know, you can kind of leave out the stuff from the failed revolution that's not convenient and use the rest to give your next revolution a a little extra padding to the to the uh, to the story. You know, a cause to take up, not just something that some guy thought up, but it's like it's something that you know these forebears of ours have fought for. I don't know why forebears come into this, but any <clears throat> sorry, dumb joke. So the 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 Taiping Rebellion started in South China, you know, should they have consolidated their base in South China, set up a working country there? I mean, like if you look at North Korea and South Korea, well after you know, the Korean War and the enforcement of the demilitarized zone and American protection of South Korea. Well, North Korea's got its own state that whatever else they've they've kind of got a thing going on. So should the Taiping have tried to, you know, set up a separate thing? You know, the book the book that I'm basing a lot of today's episode on on uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom uh, it suggests the Taiping were trying to go north to defeat the Qing dynasty, but that left them somewhat cut off from their base. Not much. There's not much to attract new recruits to. You know, like you're you're talking about the Hakka people of uh, in southwest China. Well, the thing is, there's not a lot of Hakka people up around Nanjing. There's you know, like if you could somehow appeal to the Han, you know, more generally, that, you know, it's like if, you know, in the American Civil War, it's like, okay, yeah, the, the Texans will help the Virginians because they're all in the South. But if you try to get the, you know, people from Maine to help the South, if you try to get people from Washington and Oregon to help the South, they're they're not in the south. They're not from the south. There was a guy from Pennsylvania who helped the uh, the south, but you know, he was he was not well liked out in the north after that. You know, so like like that's that that's that's the problem here. Like like the, the Taiping are not appealing to all of China. They're not successfully marketing themselves to everybody else. That, yeah, they're they're bringing it out that, um, you know, they're bringing it out that the Qing have to go, but there's so much a South China thing that they're not really successfully dealing with the fact that North China exists, um, and so they're really opened up to dying on the vine because yeah, okay, they made this successful lightning move taking Nanjing, but they don't have support that they're going to be able to keep drawing from you know you can only you know rule by the you know you know rule at gunpoint for so long if you don't have real support from the people somehow or other and you know although north china and south china are distinct they're part of the same civilization 
So no matter how the borders fluctuate, there's a North China and a South China. You know, even if you deliver on the wildest dreams of the activists, you know, for wanting Tibetan independence or, you know, the Tibet, the, the independence of Turkestan, you know, Northwest China, you give them their wildest dreams and cut China down to some sort of China proper, you still have a distinct North China and South China. That, you know, even if you, that, that there, so you, if you want to unify China, you have to appeal, you have to cover North and South somehow. The big revolutions we're going to, to deal with, you know, some months from now, we're, they're going to successfully unite the North and the South. So the Communist Party today, they have it North and South. They've, they've got the whole country. You know, so in, in for this podcast, we're going to focus more on Hong Rangan and his role as a connection between foreign powers and the Taiping. We're going to look at why their connection failed and how that contributed to the foreign decision to intervene in the Taiping Rebellion on behalf of the Qing Dynasty. So Hong Rangan has reached Nanjing and, you know, I've already given you the spoilers. You know, the Taiping are going to lose, but we're going to see what is going to grow in their failure, despite their failure. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review on all platforms. Please share with your friends. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. I will not be doing ads on this podcast. Um, uh, if you'd like to get the show notes, you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com and become a subscriber there. Um, if you'd like to uh, send me an email, tell me what you'd like to see more of, tell me what you'd like more detail about, uh, is is this working for you? Let me know. ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com Again, I am Nathan Bennett. Thanks for listening.